Hello, and welcome to the C21 podcast. My name is Jonathan Webdale. We hope you're safe and well wherever you may be. Today we hear from Lindsay Clay, Chief Executive of UK commercial TV marketing body Thinkbox, about how local lockdowns have impacted the broadcast landscape and why free-to-air channels will endure. And Banerjee Wright's Chief Executive, Cathy Payne, on how the pandemic has impacted the company and TV distribution in general. TV advertising took a major hit last year as COVID-19 decimated entire industry budgets, with sectors such as travel and hospitality reducing their spending drastically or even cancelling placements on a wholesale basis. The cancellation of major sporting events also dealt linear networks a huge blow, but despite all this and the upswing in consumer usage of SVOD, Lindsay Clay, Chief Executive of UK commercial TV marketing body Thinkbox, sees reasons for optimism. She spoke with Ollie Hammett. My first question is inevitably to do with COVID-19, and I'd like to know from you what's been the impact of the lockdown and everything on commercial broadcasting? Well, it's it's funny, isn't it? Because uh, the pandemic has been both good and bad for commercial TV. So in some ways, it's it's never been a better time. Viewers have been watching lots and lots and lots of commercial TV. It's proved its worth many times over from on every type of genre people are watching more they're rediscovering communal viewing watching stuff together they're making program recommendations so that is all uh, completely fabulous so if you just look at december and january for instance so commercial linear tv viewing was up i think five percent in december and seven percent in january so that's all very good it's bad because of course it creates lots of pressure on particular advertising sectors so it means that you know we're all familiar with them but of course you know travel and hospitality have been very uh, badly hit. And of course, it creates problems because of the challenges on the production pipeline. So, uh, you know, broadcasters are having to work even harder than they normally do in making sure that, you know, they've got really great content to satisfy that demand. You know, there are other positives too. So, you know, the great thing about increase in viewing, reduction in demand because of the categories which are more challenged has meant that there is incredible value to be had for certain advertisers. So there have been a number of advertising sectors who've really taken advantage of that and and new to TV advertisers too that's been a real boon for TV so it's a sort of it's a swings and roundabouts answer I'm afraid sure and um, what are some of the sectors where advertisers have really been able to sort of progress well I mean e-commerce has been growing for a while now Um, you know for a number of years online brands have been the biggest single advertising category so it's been it's been boom time for e-commerce food retail uh, anything to do with you know cleaning and uh you know those types of products i suppose not too surprising home gym equipment and you know baking equipment and athleisure has been huge but also toys um you know toys and home entertainment have all been uh booming categories because of course stressed parents are looking for any any port in the storm to entertain and educate their kids so all, all those have been uh, have been growing and some advertisers have been actively using it as an opportunity to get different and new 
brands on there. So Unilever, for instance, used the sort of you know cheap airtime as a way of getting Lifebuoy back on air again. So it hasn't hasn't been on air in the UK for 28 years, but um, that has been back on air this year. So that's good. Is that an opportunity for maybe, um, like you say, sort of people to sort of bring stuff back and a bit of a nostalgia trend going on? I don't know if it's a nostalgia trend. I think it's more just commercial opportunism by major advertisers. So what they've been able to do, they, they've basically, because the pricing has been so great on TV, they've been able to fill the boots in a way that they couldn't normally. So I think they get to a point where if you're a company like Unilever and you've got a whole suite of brands, normally you might be forced to prioritise uh, certain brands for airtime. Because this has given them the flexibility to support many more uh, brands within their portfolio. So that's what's been going on there. And as I, as I said earlier, for smaller advertisers, it's made TV accessible for them. So we've seen all sorts of brands get on air for the first time. I mean, it's been a um, a value-driven issue as much as anything else. And um, TV, like many markets, is a supply and demand-driven one. So if you think in terms of supply as being viewing and demand being spend from advertisers, you know, viewing's gone up. So supplies has gone up enormously. Uh, demand has dipped because certain categories can't spend. So that means it has been, you know, much cheaper than usual. And that has made it accessible to brands that possibly couldn't otherwise have thought they could afford it. One of the things we've seen in lockdown is the interruption of the sports calendar. Um, how's that affected TV marketing? Well, the uh, sports calendar, that was one of the early victims of the pandemic, wasn't it? Um, that was, uh, you know, devastating to see that, particularly for sports fans. But I think the broadcasters have proved themselves to be very nimble about plugging the gaps when they've had to. You know, they've they've had to, because that's an awful lot of hours of scheduling to refill. Um, and sport is hugely important to TV advertisers. And uh, hopefully with the vaccine, uh, you know, with the way that we are accelerating on vaccinations, that will be less of an issue in the future. But we had a look recently to see how viewing of sport, um, particularly football, had been affected. Because of course, it's now back on air. Um, there's no crowds in the stadiums. And there seemed to be some anecdotal evidence that viewing of football was down. But it actually turned out that viewing has increased. I suppose it shouldn't be a, a surprise because we're all desperate to see it aren't we I think more matches are being made available to air and so um, you know some from a sort of cumulative perspective you know people have more choice more is being watched and I think it's again it's really reinforced its role during the pandemic you know from an importance of sport from a social and communal point of view it's almost never been more important the sense of sharing something with other people outside the home so we hope that the vaccine rollout will prevent too much more disruption but of course this is part of the circumstances we're living in nowadays nothing is for certain you know we're looking ahead to the end of the year Paralympics is incredibly important to Channel 4 for instance so fingers crossed that that will still go ahead What does the growth of streaming in the last year mean for TV marketing? Uh, well the SVOD players have certainly meant fearsome competition for the broadcasters and there's you know much has been written about you know the threat to the broadcasters from the SVODs um, but I think there's various things to say about that I think in the macro sense, it's been a huge vote of confidence in uh, in TV as a whole, because it's meant, you know, it's a real affirmation of people wanting to watch, you know, high quality, professionally made content, largely to the big screen. And uh, the SVOD players uh, and SVOD viewing coexists pretty happily uh, with the broadcasters. You know, they have a symbiotic relationship. Um, a lot of what is watched on Netflix is broadcaster in origin. Um, we did an interesting analysis last year to look at what 
were the most viewed content on Netflix. And, you know, surprise, surprise, it was Friends and the Big Bang Theory. So, you know, it's it's not that, you know, original uh, Netflix, um, you know, The Crown and that sort of thing. It's actually broadcaster originated content. And I think I, th- I don't know if you saw this, but there's an interesting uh, study that Ender's analysis did recently where they, they predicted that broadcaster TV will remain the most popular form of video for the foreseeable future. So, uh, and they, I, I think they were forecasting that it would be something like 62% of all video by 2027. So it's 68% at the moment. So they don't see it as being materially damaged by SVOD. Interesting. And what um, what do you think are the reasons for that? What makes people still interested in broadcast? Well, I think it's important to remember how significant local content is to viewers. So UK-based programming, you know, if you look at what is the most popular form of programming, you know, locally produced local content is always absolutely the top. I think we get very dazzled by American drama, but actually it's not the most popular. And the UK commercial broadcasters are fantastic at creating and producing that. You know, it's the kind of programming that people want to watch. And we've seen that more than ever during the pandemic. Yes, they're watching Bridgerton, but, you know, they're also watching The Great British Bake Off and, you know, The Martin and It's a Sin on Channel 4. You know, it's been, it's been uh, you know, fantastic success for them. And of course, you know, live sport on Sky. So, you know, all, all these things are really, really important to British viewers. With the rise of AVOD, not just AVOD, but also fast channels, what opportunities do they present? Well, it's it's interesting to see how they will develop. I mean, it's, uh, you know, who knew we needed even more TV than, than we've already got? It's, a, it's a, again, it's a, it's a vote of confidence in TV. We've talked about it in terms of being a, a kind of gold rush for TV. And, you know, generally, uh, if you produce high quality content that's supported by advertising, then that, that tends to be uh, an appealing proposition. How many of them will be, uh, you know, really successful in the long term, I think is hard to predict at this stage. But, um, you know, like Netflix, they're often a rev- revenue stream for the broadcasters, you know, as they license their content. And I think it, you know, as I said, it, it demonstrates the continued viability of ad supported TV as a funding model. What do you think are um, the biggest challenges for Thinkbox going ahead into this year? Well, in a, in a way, we've got a, a fantastic job because we've got a really amazing product to market. So I think when Thinkbox was first set up, which was about 15 years ago now, there was a narrative that had been allowed to take hold because it had gone unchallenged that somehow TV was uh, dead or dying. I think nobody would say that now. It's a hugely complex, rich, interesting environment. And it's only challenging because it's moving so fast and things are constantly coming online. But but actually, I think, you know, as, as I said earlier, TV has really reinforced its importance in people's lives. And so really, our, our mission is a straightforward one. It's to help advertisers get the best out of it as a medium. And it's important. It's a hugely important driver of profit. So, you know, it is a it is a straightforward task. Another trend that we've also seen in, in the streaming world over the last year is major studios starting to retain their own content to have more control over it. How do you think this will affect the free-to-air sector? Well, 
to a degree, I think it's a it's a natural step, isn't it? Um, you know, people have worked out that content has always been king. Um, you don't want to give your content away free to all parties and see them capitalize on it. And for the future, you need great content, but you also need great distribution and a seamless viewing experience. So I think this is part of companies are having to be competitive in each of those different elements. You know, and keeping hold of the content is is the first step in that but that's only going to work if it becomes a go-to place for viewers yes there's a huge appetite uh, amongst viewers for you know a different range of services apps providers for that content but it's it's not going to be limitless so you know the best will survive and you know I would expect to see you know some consolidation in the future and I think broadly people have shown that they're happy to have a mix of free-to-air and subscription uh, in their lives so you know that they will have a suite, but it's just a question of, you know, which which are the ones that will survive. So do you definitely see people's viewing habits in the future as, as a mixture between free-to-air ad-supported content and subscription-based? I mean, it, it already is, isn't it, if you if you look at it. So, um, you know, people tend not to just do one or the other. If you look at even the heaviest Netflix viewers, they're also watching lots of other options too. So, um, you know, it already is a mixed ecosystem. Uh, and I think that will only continue. We're incredibly well served as viewers. It's a fantastic time to be a TV viewer. So I think it's good days. How is the UK market compared with the international? Well, from an advertising point of view, the patterns are pretty similar in terms of how TV advertising revenue has been affected uh, since the pandemic started. But there is some evidence to show that the UK is doing better, relatively better than its nearest European neighbours, which is heartening to see. So, you know, the revenue for the first quarter in 2021 is predicted to be down less in the UK than a number of key European markets, you know, such as Germany, France, etc. So, you know, that's that's a positive sign, I think. It's changed a bit because, of course, if you think about it, the market wasn't being affected by uh, the pandemic in the first quarter of last year. It only really hit at the very end of the first quarter. So Q1 2020 was more positive. We're currently in a lockdown and that is the case across the rest of Europe so inevitably it's going to be down but it's less down in the UK than in other places. What do you think is behind this this difference? I, I think from a from a UK point of view we've got a really strong broadcasting ecosystem. We've got three main sales houses in the form of ITV, uh, Channel 4 and Sky and they are also quite closely collaborate together on the areas where it's appropriate. So uh, I think that is the case. They've also got a very strong broadcaster VOD offering to advertisers, and that has been, you know, growing hugely during the pandemic and, um, you know, over the last few years. And also, they've really worked hard to adapt themselves and be flexible to advertisers' needs. So, for example, they've really shortened the booking window. Traditionally, there would be an advanced booking deadline of eight weeks, and they've they've basically halved that. So, if you're an advertiser and you want to either you know, change your schedule or book or change advertising, you only need to give four weeks notice. And that has made a huge difference. It's given advertisers the flexibility they needed. So I think it's um, all credit to the UK commercial broadcasters. They've really made, you know, great strides in trying to support advertisers. So, and we've seen the change that's happened uh, from an advertising investment point of view. In the early days of, you know, the very first lockdown, there was a sort of, uh, we sort of, you know, panic ensuing amongst advertisers, not quite sure what to do. And so, you know, that 
that first month was down by about 50%. But every single month after that, it improved. And it's looking like January, it would only be single figure uh, declines year on year. So, you know, it's a completely different scale. I think advertisers have got much more match fit as to, you know, how to deal with the sort of VUCA world, as it's called, sort of volatility, uncertainty, complexity and ambiguity. What opportunities can uh, lockdown and and everything that's going on provide creatively for advertisers? Well, it's been very interesting to see how advertisers have responded creatively to the pandemic. And a a bit like, um, you know, in the early days, they were just, you know, sort of wildly thrashing around, not clear uh, what they should do. And I don't know if you remember, but initially there was a whole rash of those sort of, you know, we feel your pain type ads, you know, we're all in this together. And lots of sort of slightly bleak shots of people staring hopelessly out of windows and, and looking a bit depressed. Then it became clear that actually the viewers were hoping for and expecting more normality. So, you know, not tone deaf advertising, but something that had a bit of humour in it, something that was a bit more helpful than just saying, you know, we're all in this together. And since then, I think advertisers uh, have been fantastic at overcoming the challenges that they have had. So, I mean, of course, it's exactly the same as with TV production. There are all sorts of restrictions on what you can shoot, how you can shoot, making sure it's COVID safe, you know, also things are changing so fast. So, you know, products and brands you might uh, be planning to advertise one month, the next month comes along, the situation changes. So they've, they've had to be incredibly flexible and fleet of foot. And uh, they've been taking advantage of all sorts of options. Yes, you'll see lots of options of people sort of Zoom shots of people at home, but they've also been using animation much more, for instance, and, you know, all, all sorts of different techniques. So it's been great. One of the other trends we've seen this year is marketers rediscovering the importance of brand advertising. And it's not that they ever went away from it, but sometimes almost by default, they've been forced to uh, lean back on brand advertising. And it might be because they planned a particular new product launch or a piece of news and they had to change it because of the changing circumstances. And so, you know, what they ended up doing was a more broad-based, entertaining, fame-driven type of creative. And what they discovered is it worked incredibly powerfully for them. So, you know, again, it's been a, you know, almost by accident, it's been a real reinforcement of the importance of that. If you think about it, you know, brands are built in public. That is how, you know, people get to know about them. Um, You know, fame and emotion are the two really important drivers of effectiveness in advertising. And that's what TV does so brilliantly. And it's a form of what we call uh, costly signaling. Just the fact of being on TV is indicative of a a sort of a quality, a credibility and trust dimension. You know, if it's big enough to afford to go on TV, then it must be something that um, you can trust as a brand. And you can see time and time again on trust studies that uh, viewers trust advertising on TV far more than, you know, the newer digital channels. So I I think um, that will, is going to continue to be an important part of the mix for the foreseeable future. Backed up then, supported by very targeted, specific, maybe more product or sales oriented messages. So I, I think, you know, and that's what I mean by TV will have the best of both worlds. And and both things are important. You know, it's not one rather than the other. You've got to build a brand and you've got to give people a reason to buy tomorrow. So, um, you know, it's, it's um, you know, keeping them in balance. That's the important thing. Going into 2021 as we are now, what do you think are the biggest 
threats and opportunities that the industry is going to face? Well, I think one of the things that we haven't talked very much about, which is a hugely important issue, is that of trust and transparency and the really important role that TV plays in funding high quality journalism, for instance, uh, holding our political leaders to account um, and the way they're able to do that because of the way the medium is regulated and you know the, the rules around impartiality of news provision, which is not the case in other platforms. And similarly, it's a very regulated, transparent advertising environment. And I think those things have been made really clear over the last year, uh, how important they are on an ongoing basis. And you just look at the distrust and division that has been allowed to run rampant on some of the online platforms and some of the devastating damage that that can do. And I mean, you know, both from a programming, from a news, from a, you know, democracy point of view, but those same issues are replicated in advertising too. You know, the lack of trust, the uh, lack of regulation is a, is a huge problem for brands and business too. So I think there's an increasing recognition that TV represents the high ground in media. And uh, I think that gives us much optimism for 2021 and beyond. Lindsay Clay from Thinkbox, speaking with Ollie Hammett. With the virtual version of the 2021 London screenings underway, C21 has put together a series of panel discussions and one-on-one interviews to coincide with the event, exploring the key trends and issues front of mind for buyers and sellers right now, the place of UK programming on the global stage and some of the shows to watch out for. Cathy Payne, Chief Executive of Banerjee Rights, spoke to Ed Waller about how the pandemic has impacted the company and TV distribution in general as well as the opportunities and challenges posed by the growth of streaming. Now, just to recap, Banerjee Rights has spent the past six months restructuring its operation in the wake of the uh, the parent company Banerjee's $2.2 billion buyout of Endemol Shine last year. Uh, mm-hmm. Part of that deal saw you moving over from Endemol Shine International to oversee that amalgamation of the two distribution arms. During a pandemic, in the middle of lockdown, with the industry in turmoil, no live events in the Canada. In interesting times, wouldn't you agree, Cathy? Uh, yes, I had actually resigned from Endemol Shine prior to the uh, acquisition. So then when the offer came up, I I, from Banerjee many months later, it was too good to refuse. But I didn't think I'd be undertaking this challenge, which always said I had one really big challenge left in me, having been through a few big integrations over the past years. I didn't think I'd be starting it during a pandemic. I never actually got to work a day in the Banerjee offices. And uh, the office I have been is we're back in the Endemol Shine previous offices at Shepherd's Bush. But over the past of what is coming up for a year, I think I've been there five days. So it was a huge challenge to undertake. The deal was completed, I think, the 2nd of July. And we had to go through a process of integrating those two distribution companies who now operate uh, uh, globally they did uh, before on the end of all shine side and to get to a point where we had a a new team announced on board a combined catalogue and a website within October we thought was a pretty good going especially during a pandemic so everything that has happened over that time obviously in the UK we had to go through a a formal process and we're very mindful that uh, we wanted people to know the future as soon as possible so every Everything's been done on video conference. How else has the uh, 
the pandemic impacted Banerjee Rights, would you say? It's been a, a crazy time for the whole industry, but what about Banerjee Rights? Well, I think for both the companies, Banerjee Rights as it is is now, and you've had Banerjee Rights version one and Endemol, Shine, you know, those companies operating up till we merged. I think for distribution companies, it was everyone had to act pretty quickly and they all did that efficiently, as has other distributors in being able to operate remotely, doing a lot more face-to-face rather than visiting clients in in their home markets. We kicked that off at the pandemic, but it came pretty obvious, probably maybe two to three months in, that the pandemic wasn't going to be a two or three month shutdown. There would be a delay on production. Initially, it was uh, most production was shut down for an initial period of time, except in some parts of the world. and, And because we're a global group, there were areas where production could continue, such as uh, Nordics, a fair bit in Germany, Australia, New Zealand, etc. So we started to see that there was going to be delays on product. And for a company that has a catalogue, it was a lot of demand for product. So there was a lot of getting in touch with people, looking what there were needs. Certainly any distributor that had product, especially scripted product that was filmed and basically in the can before COVID had a product supply that was going to be in demand. And for a library such as ours, it's extensive and it has a lot of long-running franchises. So we were working to fill gaps, to backfill until production was able to resume. And and most of our non-scripted, unscripted, however you like to refer to it, has all resumed production. A lot of scripted is back. It was really the premium scripted that's had the longest delays. And indeed, it's a longer production process more protocols just because of the nature but I think as production has gone along we've all got better at that Has the, the production freeze changed the way you do deals? Because obviously your clients are now perhaps looking for different kinds of deals that, than they were previously How has the deal structure changed? I, I don't think the deal structure has changed a lot because of the pandemic. Deal structures are changing because of where the market, I think you had the two things, we have this big change of a lot of studio streamers, launching or a lot of new streamers, certainly a move to VOD that's increased from not only SVOD to a lot of not only the global international SVOD players, but a lot of domestic SVOD players. And then you have the AVOD merging and emerging more and more. So you've had this industry, these big seismic changes in our industry happening at the time a pandemic comes along. So uh, for library, it's been a big demand. I think what people have, what I would say is there's sometimes there's been an urgent demand to locate some product. There'll be a gap. It has to be filled now. So there's a sense of, of urgency in that. I think the biggest effect of the COVID on us as a distributor is that all budgets have been increased because of the result of COVID protocols that had to be added. And certainly where we had productions that had to shut down, there were some costs that couldn't be transferred. You know, they were one-off costs. If you shut down a premium scripted drama when everyone's ready to go and you're not going to resume, there will be some costs and how all the partners, the broadcasters involved in the distributor, how we're going to fund those COVID costs. Have you, are you finding that 
the, the obviously the d- demand changes geographically around the world as the, as the sort of the wave of COVID hit. Well, I think at first when we hit, when it hit, there was a bit of we don't know how long this is going to last for. I remember back in March when we were first entering the first lockdowns and Europe went into a lockdown a couple of weeks before us. Uh, if I, I recall, we were still thinking about whether some productions would be back up and running in June. And of course, it's hard to think that we're in uh, now 11 months in and, and sometimes it seems like it's been a long time, but in other times it's gone very fast. I think people have had to be people who have adapted in the way we work and, and people talk about this all the time in the way we sell and the way we produce and it, it, all of these things bring changes and enhancements and innovation. Humans are pretty clever people. Of, the, of those innovations that came about because of the events of last year, do you think some of them will be permanent, some of them are just temporary? I mean obviously the way that we're doing business is changing but is it going to revert back I do think some of those will, will will change and no doubt there'll be a demand even from the simple things of how we work. Well, I'm sure everybody, especially in the UK, is looking forward to not seeing their home offices as often. We have functioned and there's that whole question of, of how many days you'll be in the office and teams, how you can, you know, when teams meet up, how efficiently. Uh, I think the work-life balance, the commute for people who live in big cities, all those things will have a permanent effect on how we go forward. Just as it's been reported in the in the news where they expect because there'll be a lot of offices who won't have as big main offices because there'll be flexible working where people will come in, you know, you probably share offices and so forth. I see more of that happening. And indeed the way that we I do think the way we were doing business as a distributor clearly had been changing. We follow the model of people on the ground in the major markets local people doing local deals or really being ingrained in the industry in that territory. So if you're based in LA, you're very much for Banerjee Rights as a distribution person, you're there in the office with a number of your production colleagues. So you're kind of part of the industry landscape you know what you you see all the events you watch a lot of tv in that market you're part there so you're really part of the the eco center and that was always a, a a push for us and i do think that people do a lot of business there's no such thing as a one p- particular time to sell in the year it's a revolving year where a long time ago when we had people only bought things at two times in the year so that's just evolved it when you've got a show and it's ready for sale, you just take it to market. Do you think we'll stick with things like developing shows over Zoom and pitching shows over Zoom, all the things that we now do over Zoom? Do you think they'll stick? Well, I do think that in some ways when we were talking about this just the other day, when you're doing those big co-production pitch meetings and say you're you go to LA and you have a number scheduled, a number of those scheduled over a couple of days. There's always a pressure to get them all in on those days and, and get around the, the traffic. Zoom has allowed actually some of those meetings to happen a lot more quickly and you can get more people in the room, even though it's a virtual room. And I think people have just become better at Zoom. They become more natural. They're so used to it now that at first everyone's going, oh, do I really have to look at myself all the time uh, and listen to, to what I'm saying? But people 
just have got used and feel comfortable in their own skin. Of course, I don't think it will ever replace person-to-person meetings because we all, you know, we we work in an industry where we like to to share ideas. But it's thank goodness it happened now and not ten years ago. <laughs> what are the kind of uh, genres that buyers are looking for in, uh, under lockdown? Did they all move to sort of feel-good stuff and they didn't want sci-fi or anything like that? Uh, I, I think when the pandemic was first starting, there was so much news about the pandemic. There were a number of specials and, and no doubt a, a couple of the review specials that have come out are very good. But yes, life and day-to-day news was fairly fairly tough. So people wanted shows that were a more lighter relief. And I think because families were at home together, definitely those shows that, that offered co-viewing have done uh, very well. And people look forward, if you just look at our example in the UK, and we can see it around the world, people have gone to those events when they are uh, in studio, they're, they're live events. And you look at the audiences that just in this country for last year, if you look at MasterChef, Bake Off, uh, I'm a Celebrity, Strictly Come Dancing, they all had all of those shows, and I'm pretty sure I'm correct here, had record audiences. And, and people were, were willing to, to go to those and, and watch them. And also I think everyone thought it was just great that those shows were able to pull it off, as have many of the others, you know, that, that have followed. Has there been a big switch towards unscripted uh, because of this perceived shortage of uh, drama? Uh, I, I think there's people want drama and people love drama. There'll always be a need. I don't think that's a permanent change, but no doubt there's been a lot of scripted shows that have been delayed, certainly uh, a lot from everywhere in the world. So there were some unscripted shows that could to to fill that gap. Uh, and of course, the the more the daily dramas were were, were probably the the soaps, and so were some of the first to be able to get back up into production. And are you finding opportunities opening up in places which hitherto were uh, weren't places you could sell into, or networks that you could sell to, because because they were pivoting towards acquisitions? I'm, I'm thinking mainly of the the big US broadcast networks because they did a big pivot to buying in international. I think what the opportunities that have come with those big US broadcast networks is for all their ancillary services and channels. So certainly with the Peacock or with what will now be Paramount Plus or or whether you're you're looking at uh, their Avon services like Tubi and, and Pluto, there's great opportunities there, no doubt. You know, domestically in domestic markets or the linear broadcasters uh, have turned what was probably originally a catch-up TV platform into more a permanent VOD offering where there's a library of programming that you can dip in and dip out to and most commissioning broadcasters in general around the world are taking a longer license as part of their commissioning, even if it is for their main linear service for those platforms. So there, there's opportunities to license content to a number of broadcasters for those platforms. And that has increased and, and continues to increase as new entrants come into the market. In particular, when you've got some long-running franchises, as we're fortunate to have in our catalogue, I think franchises that people recognise globally, they'll 
will always be of interest. Do you think that there's uh, other opportunities springing up because of the way that a lot of the Hollywood studios are, are said to be keeping their own programming for their own platforms? Does that create opportunities for you to sell? Uh, because that, that's... Yeah, no doubt. There, there's, there's opportunities. People are, are looking there. There's a lot of domestic services that won't have access to content that they may have had as certain studio deals finish or they're more limited or it's a different windowing system. So, But I always thought once we became Banerjee Rights Plus, because just to distinguish what Banerjee Rights was before, we are a really large distributor now. And we've got a library of of we go of over a hundred thousand hours of content. Now we have to remember that, you know, we I think as and when you look at our big colleagues, we're big distributors and in our own rights, even though we're not Hollywood studios. So, you know, we are people that everybody will want to talk to about what product you've got coming up. Obviously, as the as those big distributors are having direct to consumer strategies of their own, how about Banerjee Rights? Is that I mean, there's opportunities being provided by smart TVs, that kind of thing. One thing is we're not looking to launch our own direct to consumer service as such. So that isn't that's not in our remit at the moment. We see ourselves as a producer and a content supplier, and we're platform broadcaster, free to deal with, agnostic to deal with whomever we wish and we love all our customers and we want to provide content to all of them. In terms of maybe the self-publishing on platforms, we started doing this quite a few years ago. I think we were one of the first companies to really engage with Pluto. So, you know, Pluto has really gained a profile in, in the last years. Of course, it was acquired by Viacom as Tubi was by Fox. But I was looking back and, and actually plotting some of our growth in this area in recent years. And we were working with Pluto five, six years ago. So this is an, an uplift to us. So on those platforms, yes, there is self-publishing. It's, it's a licensing for, for owned and operated channels by the platform, or indeed we might publish some, some content ourselves and we will do that. You know, we publish on, on YouTube and Facebook and where that is a self-publishing uh, model, we've published behind the paywall on Amazon. So there is a mixture of, of, of those. But if you're saying, are we looking at launching our own service? No. Given what happened in 2020 and, and the direction 2021 is going in, what are your what are the priorities and highlights and challenges and opportunities for 2021, would you say? Yeah, I think uh, starting we've always maybe the challenges I think it's been a long time for everyone to be in a a pandemic and no doubt we had this great energy because it was really tough but we were looking forward to coming to in this great company and I think everyone was then focusing Christmas is coming wasn't quite the Christmas we planned but I did feel after Christmas coming into New Year there was that feeling oh this has been going on a long time so you've got to remember that we're only as good as the people in the business and to make sure you look after 
each other. And I've really been impressed with Banerjee with with the amount of attention to that subject and making sure people are feeling good in themselves, having regular forums where people can check in, being really mindful to people who found themselves on their own over those Christmas periods who weren't expecting to be on their own when restrictions came in on travel and how they ran really great forums so everyone over that period who was on their own people were checking in with them so uh, that was great. Uh, so it's a challenge, you know, to re-energise everybody. We're nearly there. We're nearly to the end. And I think that that is a challenge. We go into a year when I remember when we said, well, MIP TV is not happening. I don't think MIPCOM is going to happen. And as we go into this year, there's a question of there will be no in-person markets and will we get there at, at the end of this year is still a question that all of us would, would like to, to know the answer to. So I think it's just making sure that we've refined how we're pitching, how we're keeping in contact with people, making sure we're aware of their needs, what works for them. Uh, we're, We're lucky that we have such a strong slate of product and we have a lot of internal production companies who fuel that slate as well as our third party relationships. So that's challenge. Big challenge in the industry is always that give and take on rights retention. What deals do you do? What deals do you retain? What are the payoffs on on either of those? Uh, no doubt opportunities, more and more VOD platforms, whether they're domestic or international, are fueling demand for product. Uh, so that is keeping us very, very busy. That takes us nicely to London uh, TV screenings, which is mm-hmm. taking place in March. Obviously, it's virtual. What, what, what can uh, what can buyers that log in expect to see on the Banerjee rights slate? Well, we'll be doing a, a good recap of, of the slates that have launched over the last months and are launching. So we've got our programming categorised into pillars. So we'll have updates on those and reminding people of all the really strong franchises or the performance of shows that have recently uh, launched or are launching. We'll have a number of premiere screenings. So it'll be the first time uh, two of our big new scripted shows that are delivering will be available to screen. Uh, One of those is Viewpoint, which is uh, from Tiger Aspect, which is launching on ITV in the coming months. And the other one is Royal Flying Doctor Service for Channel 7 in Australia that comes from Endemol Shine Australia. And that will be launching in the coming months as well. So there'll be an opportunity for buyers to actually log in and screen those in in real time uh, for their premieres that will be happening lots of just new reels and updates on on the catalogue and I think giving people that reminder of of when you have a slot of the depth of a number of those franchises you know that we have uh, especially in a world where you know co co-exclusivity is becoming a subject that we see more and more where you'll have platforms there'll always be that wish to have those premiere shows that are exclusive only see there but we are seeing a pattern of licensing more and more on a non-exclusive basis you've got to have a very good right system which we have uh, and make sure that's uh, updated and and uh, so people can run availability reports and be very clear on what's exclusive when it becomes non-exclusive what's available to who how do your clients react to the idea that they have to share their hot new content with someone else? 
well, maybe the hot new content, I would say no, they want that exclusive. I'm talking more about library. Yes, new product, it's definitely still an exclusive game. Any more highlights from your London TV screenings? In terms of our uh, non-English scripted slate, which is important uh, to us, one of the highlights will have Hero Season 2, which is one of our Spanish dramas, which is made uh, by Portacabo for uh, Movie Star. We have a number, a whole slate of our, our non-scripted, a couple of shows that have not, um, one I was going to mention, but I'm not allowed to announce it yet. But we have, uh, on our uh, non-English slate, we have a whole raft of shows that are returning. They're returning series that will be coming through. Um, just lastly, what, I mean, beyond 2021, what are the plans for the London TV screenings? Uh, presumably it's going to be a physical event at some point? Is it? Uh, well, we will see. I mean, we, we've put this one together uh, and I think it's too early for us to really talk about what comes next. That's an evolving uh, world. So we, we will have to see. I mean, we have had screenings in the, in the past, uh, but we, we will see how it evolves over the years. So we're not putting definitive plans in, but London screenings is always something that we have uh, always supported. Kathy Payne from Banerjee Writes, talking with Ed Waller. That's all for this episode, but there'll be more about the London screenings in the podcast tomorrow and throughout next week. We also have a dedicated microsite focused on the event, so look out for that. And in the meantime, stay safe and up to date with all the latest international TV industry developments by following C21 online, on mobile and social media. My name's Jonathan Webdale. Thanks for listening. Listener.